discipline. Now, just me saying that word likely brings strong images to your mind. You may remember a time when you misbehaved and your parents stepped in to correct you and to try and keep you from doing the same thing again. Whether or not it worked, that's for you to tell that story. But we all know discipline. Maybe that image comes to mind for things that happened to you in school. You were caught misbehaving and formal steps had to be taken to correct you. It's likely that when you are reminded of these moments, you are transported back to them, right? You can remember them clearly in your mind. Maybe you even feel that same deep feeling in your gut of fear and uncertainty knowing that you were in trouble. And discipline is an important matter. And I'm guessing in most cases you look back on the discipline that you've had in your life and you now understand the importance of it. The way that those situations were handled by those in positions of authority over you shaped you. And they helped you to understand what you were doing wrong. And then, if you're an adult, when you became an adult, you learned yourself the difficulty of discipline. It's necessary for the development of children to set them on the correct path. But it's hard to know if what you are doing is the right course course of action. As much as when you were being disciplined, you maybe had butterflies in your stomach. As a parent or as another person in a position of authority, you might have those same feelings in your gut, wondering if what you are doing for those children is right. And that's because discipline is hard. Not only for those who are being disciplined, but also for those who are doing the disciplining. And so as we return to the book of Hebrews after our break for Palm Sunday and Easter, we find ourselves in a passage that is addressing this very topic, discipline. Not how you and I should perform discipline, but how we are disciplined by the God who so deeply loved us that he paid the price to save us from our sin. And so as we come to this passage this morning, we're going to break it down into three points again to help us navigate it and to understand it. So the first point this morning is that we're called to set aside sin. It would be really easy to look at the grace of God that we've been reading about here in the book of Hebrews and to see it as a license to sin. God has paid the price to reconcile us to himself. And it's all taken care of So our natural sinful inclination would be to think that now we can do whatever we want because now we have a blank check of forgiveness from God. But instead of a license to sin, the author of Hebrews calls us to set aside sin in light of the gospel. We're to pursue holiness and run with endurance in light of the truth of what Jesus has done for us. And then secondly... We see that God disciplines his children. And this is a harsh truth for us because we often confuse love with good feelings. And we think that God just wants us to be happy. The truth is that God wants us to be holy. And his discipline for us is like the discipline a parent has for a child. 
Parents don't discipline because it's fun. Parents discipline their children because they love them and they care for them. And the same is true for God. He loves us and he disciplines us because we're his children. And finally, we're called to work and to strive for holiness. We know that we're holy because we're in Christ. We've been given the gift of Christ's perfect righteousness. And God sees us as though we have never sinned because of what Jesus has done. But that does not mean that we are magically now perfect in this life. We still find ourselves struggling with indwelling sin. And that doesn't just go away. And that's why we hear the Word and the Spirit comes to us and convicts us of our sins that we might amend our lives and live a life of greater obedience before God. And so with those three points mapped out, let's begin our journey through this passage. And so as we return to Hebrews today, it couldn't have worked out any better that these two verses are how the passage starts off, because it's reminding us of where we left off in Hebrews chapter 11 uh, two weeks ago. We have that word there, that word therefore, right there at the beginning to call us back to where we were at a couple weeks ago. And we spent two weeks in that chapter, the great faith chapter of Hebrews 11. We were looking at the big names of the faith in the Old Testament, and we learned that they, they trusted in the same thing that we trust in. They hoped in the coming of the Messiah and looked for something beyond what they could see in front of their faces. They were looking for what was to come. And we saw that biblical faith looks to the work of Jesus and that victory that he has won for us is our only hope. Whether that was in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to the Messiah, or for us, looking back to Jesus, knowing that he has paid the price for us. Biblical faith has always trusted in the work of the Messiah to save. And so the author of Hebrews continues here, and he calls back to those witnesses that he mentioned in Hebrews 11. And we've seen the testimony of those there who look to Christ, and we have seen how God accomplished salvation for his people. And this doesn't cause us to become passive and sit around waiting for our lives to end. The authors of Hebrews tells us that this should cause us to lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. And I really appreciate, I think it's awesome, the way that this is stated here. Every weight. Sin is extra weight. It's baggage that you don't need. It's like that famous, uh, that famous prank that we used to try to pull on everybody in Boy Scouts, right? When somebody wasn't looking, or they were maybe behind the tree doing what they needed to do on a long hike, we'd try to put rocks in their backpack, right? And the hope was that they wouldn't catch you, and they'd have that extra weight behind, uh, behind them as they went down the path. They were struggling, because they had that extra weight they didn't need. Well, you know what a difference that makes. Whether you have been in the batter's, or not the batter's box, but if you, whether you've been in the on-deck circle with a bat with a weight on it, you know what it feels like to take the weight off. Or you know what it's like, maybe you went for a walk 
You were on a health kick and you went for a walk with ankle weights on. And you got home and you took them off and it kind of felt like you were sort of flying around the house, right? You know what those feelings are like. When you remove that extra weight, you notice the difference. You know it was there. You can tell the difference when a weight has been removed. And if you're able to move on from sin, it's the same thing. A weight is lifted from you. And that's what the author of Hebrews is pushing us towards. Leave the weight behind. In the lives of the heroes of the faith, we have seen how we're saved by trusting in God's salvation in Christ. And so now we know that we are free. Why would we want to continue to be burdened by the sin that we have been freed from? Well, and then the author of Hebrews gives us another illustration that we can really easily understand. We're told to run with endurance the race that is set before us. And this shows us something here, right? The Christian life is not a sprint. It's an endurance race. And those races require that you finish strong. We must set our eyes on the finish line that God has given us in the Lord Jesus and keep our eyes on Him because He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And as we have seen so clearly in the book of Hebrews, the work of Jesus for us is how we're saved. And it is our faith and trust in his power to save that gives us peace and hope. And so the author of Hebrews calls us to fix our eyes on him. And then he shows us what Jesus did. He ran the race, set before him with endurance. With joy, he endured the cross even though to be crucified on a cross was shameful. But we see that he was glorified in his resurrection and ascension. And now he has finished the course. And we know this because he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And so we are called to put aside sin and endure to the end because Jesus has endured for us. This is the goal. But we know that this is hard. It's absolutely difficult to put away sin. One of my absolute favorite quotes ever, not just from the time of the Reformation, but from ever, is from Martin Luther. And I, uh, I have it up here for us. He said, when I became a believer, I thought I had drowned the old nature, but the rascal knew how to swim. Isn't that true? No matter how much we think that we can put away sin on our own, the rascal knows how to swim. The old nature comes back. It's so true. And so the author of Hebrews reminds us what Jesus did to endure for us to save us from sin. Sinners attacked Jesus with hostility, and he endured. And so we are called to remember the endurance of Jesus to endure ourselves. And the example of Jesus is again called upon. The author of Hebrews says, have you struggled against sin to the point of shedding blood? Jesus shed his blood to save you from sin. And so now we can endure in fighting against the sin that clings so tightly. And as a part of this struggle, we see our second point come out in the next part of the text. God disciplines his children. And this is such an important part of the idea that God disciplines us. He does it because we are his children. 
the author of Hebrews is saying, remember that God addresses you as children. You aren't just some random people making their way in the world, brothers and sisters. You are the children of God because you have been bought and paid for by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you are adopted into the family of God. And so he cares for you as his own. And so this idea is built up here with some quotations from Scripture. And you can see the very clear idea here. Don't regard the Lord's discipline lightly. He's doing it because he loves you. He has your best interest at heart. Now, I, I hesitate to use the following illustration because, because it's sad, but we know it to be true. You can tell when parents are absent, can't we? We know it to be true. We talk about it all the time. Often the behavioral issues that we see in children are a result of a lack of parental involvement. And the idea that we see here is that, of course, you are being disciplined for your sinfulness. You have a father who loves you. Of course he's going to discipline you. It's because he loves you. He gave his only begotten son to bring you into his family. Of course he's going to discipline you. It shouldn't be a surprise. It should be an expectation because he loves you so deeply and he calls you his child. Of course he will discipline. And as we move on to verses 7 and 8, we see this point expanded upon. And you see, the author of Hebrews would, would have seen examples of what he's talking about here in the time that he lived in. Now, back then, many Roman nobles would have had illegitimate children because they were conceived through their rampant sexual immorality. And these children that were illegitimate they would have been completely ignored by these Roman nobles. And that's what we see here at the end of verse 8. The illegitimate children of these Roman nobles would be forgotten, pushed aside, and they were left without discipline. But, one thing we know about these Roman nobles, the children that they had with their legal wives, they would have had their father's name. They laid hold of them. They were attached to them. They were the ones who were going to inherit their estate. And they were also put into rigorous training programs so that they would be raised right. And so that's what's in the mind of the author of Hebrews here. This idea that you're not the children that were illegitimate, that are forgotten about. You are the children that God cares for. And the author of Hebrews keeps pushing his illustration here. Our earthly fathers discipline us and we respect them. How much greater should our respect be then for our Father in heaven? It should be greatly magnified. And we see why here. Our Father, our earthly fathers discipline us for a short time. But God's discipline is continuous and it's for our good. And we also see that it is for a specific purpose that we might share in his holiness. His standards are for our good. And the more that we become like him, it not only glorifies his holy name, but it is a benefit to us as we grow in the fruit of the Spirit and we love God and our neighbor more and more. But discipline is hard. 
It's difficult. And as we move on to our third point, we see that we're to strive and work for holiness. As it says here, it seems painful rather than pleasant. Now, it's important that we take a minute here to, to make sure we understand something. I've been referencing discipline as like being uh, chastised. But there's another element to discipline, right? Discipline is not always punishment. We can discipline our children without them being punished. Because we discipline our children when we ensure that they brush their teeth, right? We're not punishing. Well, maybe they think it's punishment. But we're not disciplining our children when we have them do something that's for their good. We're disciplining our children when we're teaching them to do important things, right? And that's part of the imagery here. And none of that is easy. It would be a lot easier not to have to do any of that because it all seems rather painful. It's not pleasant. But we know that those things that we have our children do pay off in the end. And that's the point that's being made here. God not only disciplines his children when they break his law, but the law of God itself disciplines us. We are learning godliness from following his commands. We are shaped and formed by the word of God. And it pays off. God is at work in his children through his word and by the Holy Spirit convicting us of our sin. And it's hard. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained. We look at those who excel in different areas, right? Whether it's sports or whatever. And we often talk about their, their natural God-given talent. And obviously, that's true. People have God-given levels of talent. They're, they're, they're gifted. But what we don't talk about very often is the hard work that those people put in. MVP baseball players are still hitting off a batting tee almost every day. They're going and being thrown to. Pitches, pitchers are throwing. Even after they win the Cy Young Award, they're still throwing. Championship quarterbacks practice throwing and they study playbooks because discipline takes work. And the same is true for holiness. We need to press on in our following God's command and growing in holiness. And when we do, it pays off. It yields fruit. Even though it's hard, it's worth it. What we all want is some magic bullet, right? We want something that we can do, some verse we can read that'll magically make us holy and it won't take any effort. That's what we want. But that's not how it works. Excellence isn't something you get randomly. It takes work. But in the case of being disciplined in godliness, we can know that all the effort will pay off. And so as our passage for today continues, we see the author of Hebrews encouraging us, encouraging us to get up to get on the straight path, to get moving towards holiness. And the athletic training imagery that has been found throughout here continues. You've got to get up. You've got to get those muscles moving and be healed to finish the race. 
And so the call is to strive for peace with everyone and to strive for holiness, we see. And the author here says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, this is not saying that you need to be perfectly holy on this side of glory to enter into God's presence. What it's saying is that if you're a child of God, you're going to desire to live in holiness. You're going to desire to conform your life to God's law. And so it's important to strive for these things. So what else does the author of Hebrews encourage the people of God to do here? It says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Well, what does that mean? Well, the idea expressed here is that we're to ensure that a pure gospel is proclaimed. We don't want false teaching invading the ears of others and setting them on a path away from the pure grace of God that we find in the gospel. And we also are to ensure that no root of bitterness causes trouble and makes people angry and causes discord among God's people. Because we know that this discord that can so easily happen moves people away from God's call to live a holy life. And what else do we see here? We also see that there's no place, no place for sexual immorality. Now this is a problem in every age. It's not just our problem. In a pagan culture, sexual immorality of all kinds runs rampant. And the author of Hebrews is calling for the people to remain chaste and follow God's standard for sexual purity within the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. As I said, this is a problem. It is a temptation in every age. But as believers in Jesus Christ who are saved by his grace, we are called to resist the temptations of the world. We're not to look like the world. We're called to resist those temptations. And so as the passage closes up, the author uses the example of Esau. What did he do? We're going to see it here in just a few weeks is when we return to Genesis after we're done with Hebrews. He sold his birthright for a single meal. He gave up his blessing for something temporary. And after the meal was consumed, after it was digested, he still wanted to receive a blessing. But he was rejected. And the point being made here is to seek the Lord while he may be found. Repent now as you hear the word. Turn from sin and the lust of things that are temporary and pursue that which is eternal. And what a blessing it is for us to be able to see this message in God's Word today. Because we live in a world that is obsessed with the temporary and finding the pleasures that fulfill our desires of the moment. And so this is a blessed reminder that there is something more for us that is so much more valuable to pursue. And so, what I want us to do is to look at our two points of application that we can take into the world as we desire to live holy lives as God has called us to do. So our first point of application here. Consider the cloud of witnesses. That's how our passage started out today, with a reminder of the heroes of the faith, and it charged us with laying aside every weight and every sin that clings so tightly. Remember what the heroes of the faith clung to. 
It wasn't their own righteousness. It wasn't their own works. Instead, they clung to the promise of Christ. They chose to forsake the world and instead look to the one who would be forsaken for their sins. And to that cloud of witnesses, we need to add some people. I think this is important. We need to add all of those who have clung to Christ. It's important that we remember that this quest for holiness and for honoring God with our lives is not a solo effort. It is one of the primary reasons that we're here today. We gather to worship God in spirit and in truth, but we also gather to be encouraged by one another, to encourage one another to live holy lives. And so I want to encourage you, as you run the race with endurance, bind yourself to others that are running the race. There are those who are more experienced, and you can learn from them. There are those who are younger in the faith, and they can learn from you. Together, we are the family of God, and we are to build up one another and grow in holiness together. And so consider the cloud of witnesses, not only that we read about in Scripture, but the people that you know and your brothers and sisters here today. Secondly, if we're to do this, it requires that we pursue holiness. As we have seen, the discipline of this is difficult. It's so important that we remember that this is an active thing. We will not become more holy if we don't do anything. We need to hear the word. We need to let the Holy Spirit convict us of our sin. Does your sin pain you? When you rebel against your loving and holy God, does it bring you pain? Are we allowing the Spirit to be at work in us? If those things aren't happening, we're not going to grow. That's just a fact. And so we need to be sure to hear the Word. We need to know God's commands for us, and we need to assess whether we are following them. And it's so vital that we understand that this all begins with repentance. It starts with a change of mind that acknowledges that you and I cannot do this on our own. We need the one who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. Our growth in holiness comes from turning it over to God and understanding that I'm not earning my salvation on my own. Instead, I have received salvation, and so I desire to live a life worthy of the price that was paid for me. And so, as we finish up and we think about how this applies to us, I want to take the idea of the race, that illustration used here by the author of Hebrews, and I want to continue it and expand upon it. May we endure. May we finish the race with a certain knowledge that we don't run that race alone. Our sisters and our brothers in Christ run with us. Jesus is with us. The Holy Spirit indwells us. And we will arrive at the destination because God is merciful and He has shown us that mercy. And so may we continue, may we endure, may we finish the race knowing that we have one another, we have Jesus, and we have the Spirit at work in us. 
Amen.